This is Dr. August Kunkel in his teaching on the books of Chronicles. This is session number 14, The Divine Presence. In this session, uh, we want to continue pursuing uh, the Chronicler's presentation of the temple. A big part of that presentation is the installation of the ark. And as we have already emphasized in the function of the temple, the reason that this is so significant is because it represents the relationship between the holy, the creator, the life giver, and those to whom he gives life, and to those especially who represent him in that life, namely those in his image, uh, we as his people. Uh, so the uh, placing of the ark in the most holy place is one of great ceremony and one of great significance it is in the placing of the ark in the temple that we especially see that what this represents is the divine presence in creation, but not the divine presence in the sense that God is somehow limited to space and time. Rather, it represents the divine presence in terms of God's rule. Holiness and life are almost synonymous in the Hebrew mind because life can only come from the holy. Uh, life is not inherent to the common. There is nothing in uh, the elements of the earth as we know them uh, that has the power to generate that which we call life. This is a gift. It is something that comes from the holy. That is the way the Hebrews conceive of it. And so this life-giving power, this holiness, uh, and in that sense God's presence, is especially seen in the installation of the ark. So beginning in chapter 5, verse 2, all the way to chapter 6, verse 11, we have the whole ceremony in which the ark is now moved from the tent in which David had placed it uh, when he brought it up from Kiryat Yarim, to it coming into the most holy place in the temple. Uh, and, of course, as we have already alluded, uh, this most holy place is an exclusive place uh, outside of the common, uh, the earth that God has created. And so that is then designated by darkness. And in, it's an appropriate metaphor in the sense that darkness removes us from the concept of God being limited by time, and darkness removes us from the concept of God being limited by space. Because God has created time and space, he is not limited by these things. Uh, so the way in which to represent this dimension of holiness is darkness. Of course, God can also be symbolized by light. And in Psalm 104, uh, we have that metaphor used in a very dynamic and powerful way that uh, God is the splendor of light and he's the splendor 
of all that is life and that is beautiful. So it's not that life cannot uh, that light cannot represent uh, life and goodness and cannot represent God. Uh, it does represent God, and it does represent life. And uh, Jesus is the light of the world. But the most holy place in the temple is to represent something else. It's to represent the fact that God stands outside of time and space. And the best way to represent that is in terms of darkness. Because in the darkness, we do not know anything about space. And in the darkness, we don't know anything about time. Uh, Those people who have been committed to some of the worst of suffering, which is uh, to be uh, held in a dark cell where you don't even have any idea of day or night or the passing of time uh, is, is uh, really uh, illustrative of the way in which for us to function normally, we need to know something about time and we just need to know something about space. Um, that is absolute persecution to put a person into that kind of a situation, which has been done many times. Um, but in, in terms of representing God, it is most appropriate, because it is a reminder that God is in another dimension. And so the ark is placed uh, inside the most holy place, and uh, it indicates God's rule. Now, a a little note must be said here, again, about dwelling. Uh, When we hear the word dwelling, where God has placed his name to dwell, or the place that God has chosen where he will dwell, uh, we have the tendency to think of dwelling being a location, and that uh, there is some some, some kind of special way in which There is the presence of God here. But Solomon will deny that that is the case. He is going to say, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? So then what does dwelling mean? Well, we actually get a proper sense of what they mean by dwell when we look at the way it which is used by other ancient kings. So a king will place up a statue in a certain territory. And when he places that statue in that territory, it tells you that he dwells there. Now that doesn't mean that the king in some physical way is there. He's not. This is just a representation of the king. He doesn't dwell there. What it means is that he rules there. Uh, So this can be demonstrated from many, many inscriptions. When God says, that's where I dwell, it means this represents my rule. That's what the cherubim are all about. So we have to get it out of our minds that the Hebrews had some sense that uh, there was a special physical presence of God uh, here. That wasn't the way in which they reduced the holiness of God to their own dimensions. They didn't do that. Uh, Rather, they were making confession that God is the ruler of all of the earth. And this is a representation of the fact that he rules in all the earth. So, as you know, when the ark is placed in the most holy place, there is the, 
There is the fire and there is the glory that is absolutely overwhelming. It, it represents exactly what happened when Moses dedicated the tabernacle at the book of, end of the book of Exodus in chapter 34. This is a repetition. It is the same thing that happened when David offered the sacrifice uh, where, uh, on the threshing floor of Aruna. Uh, when he said this is going to be the temple site. Uh, God does manifest the fact that uh, he is present among us in the sense that he rules among us, he gives us life, uh, we are dependent on him. There is a little uh, poem there. It's quite abbreviated in Chronicles and it's quite abbreviated in Kings. But from the various versions of it in uh, all of the scriptural uh, manuscripts, uh, we can uh, reproduce it a little bit more completely. Not that it uh, matters all that much. It doesn't change the essence of its meaning, but it fills it out a little bit for us. The Lord made manifest his Son in the heavens. He has chosen to dwell in deep darkness, saying, Build my house, a house fitting for yourself that you may abide in a new way. And as you can see, this has been constructed from the LXX as well as the book of Kings. So God is building a house that he can manifest his presence among us in a new way. Uh, now, uh, the way in which the Psalms reflect some of this. Uh, here I've got to Psalm 36 verses 8 and 9. Uh, where it uh, talks about the temple. And this is really uh, talking about uh, the way in which the temple represents life. And you can look back to see the context of these verses. But they feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of the lights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Uh, this is a celebration of what the temple represents uh, and uh, the way in which uh, the glory and the beauty of all of creation around us comes from God but is represented by the temple. Or here we have another line which comes from Psalm 134, the last of the ascent psalms as we call them in the Psalter. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless Yahweh. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, the maker of heaven and earth. So the maker of heaven and earth and the sanctuary are very closely linked. The sanctuary uh, represents creation and the most holy place represents the creator. So we come then to Solomon's dedication prayer, uh, where Solomon makes confession of the temple function. This is not God's space, rather it is the place that represents his rule. It couldn't be God's space, because God's throne is the heavens, and the heaven of heavens. So it's not his space, but it is the place from which he rules, and uh, that is made uh, very clear uh, in this chapter. Uh, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things so they came into being? Now that last closing part of Isaiah there is a wonderful prophetic declaration uh, 
of exactly what the temple represents. Uh, there's a lot of conflict represented in the last part of the book of Isaiah between different groups of people and uh, the uh, worship of God. But uh, this is a, a triumphant uh, declaration uh, that comes from the uh, group that wants to faithfully understand God and his presence. And, and so uh, the point is that uh, we can't allow these rituals around the temple to somehow think that they have some implicit power in and themselves that just because you do the ritual you have accomplished the acknowledgement and worship of God. No, it's just a ritual. It's just something you do. It has significance if you know what it means. But if you don't know what it means, it's just another action. Now, we have these kinds of rituals all the time. Uh, I I have a little story that I can tell. Uh, If you look here, you can see on my finger a wedding band. And uh, when we go to a wedding, there's always a quite a ceremony about putting this ring on the fourth finger of the left hand because it symbolizes something about the vow that is being taken. Now, you can put any kind of a ring on a finger and it's just putting a ring on a finger. You can put a, a wedding band on a finger, but if it's not part of the ceremony, it doesn't mean anything. However, when it's part of that ceremony, it's no longer just a ritual. It's no longer just an action. And I found out how important that is because uh, through a series of events, somewhat due to my excitement and carelessness, I forgot the rings. And uh, the result was they had to go back to be fetched. And the result was that people sat in the sanctuary and waited for about 20 to 30 minutes uh, listening to the organist waiting for the groom to show up with the rings. You just, you, you can't get along without the ritual. So it's, I, I got a lesson in the fact that it's not that the, you can be married without a ring, but I challenge you in our context to get married without a ring. I found out you can't do that very easily. Well, the temple is a little bit the same way, and that's what the prophet here is saying. What is this building? Well, it's just a building in the realm of the common. If you don't understand what this building represents and what these rituals are all about, then it's nothing. So what is this house? Remember what it represents. It represents the one who has made all these things so they come into being. That's the temple of the chronicler's day. It's it's passages like this the chronicler has in mind. Uh, So then the chronicler comes to his own conclusions of Solomon's petitions in Psalm chapter 6. Here's where he doesn't just follow the book of Kings, which is his source, but he goes back to Psalm 132, 8 to 10. And what is Psalm 132, 8 to 10? That is the whole account of David bringing the ark from Kiriat Yarim and placing it in the most holy place, so that it may have its resting place and represent God. And that's what these verses specifically say in verses 8 to 10. They say uh, that uh, God will now rise. He is 
uh, demonstrating the fact that he is the king. He is the one who reigns because the ark is in its place and it represents his power and his presence. The chronicler combines that with another very important verse from Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 concludes a very important section in the book by referring back to David and the Davidic promise. As we have seen, the Davidic promise was very, very important to the chronicler. In fact, his whole concept of who they are as a people depends on this Davidic promise. And Isaiah 54 says, God will remember the sure mercies of David. Now, the sure mercies of David are not the mercies which David performed, but rather they are the mercies which God assured that David would receive. That is what it means in Psalm 50, in Isaiah 54. And that's what the chronicler is referring to here. Now we are seeing God carrying out the sure mercies of David. So here we have uh, the divine presence and the dedication ceremony in First Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 7. And then the vision. The chronicler doesn't say this was at Gibeon, as it does in Kings, but uh, Solomon has this vision. And really it has many of the same warnings. Unfaithfulness, and this temple is gone, and people are going to um, marvel at how it was possible that such a magnificent building could just disappear. But what is really most important here is verse 14, and in many ways, this has all the key vocabulary of the chronicler. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves. Now, we haven't referred to that word yet, but uh, that is a, a very important word to the chronicler. Humbling ourselves. Probably one of the hardest things for us as humans to do. Humility doesn't in any sense come natural to us. Uh, we like to emphasize our power, our ability, those things that we can do. Um, but before God, we can only be humble. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, will pray, and will seek my face, then will I hear from heaven, not just this temple, but I will hear from heaven, and I will turn, and I will heal. Now, this is very key vocabulary. When the chronicler comes to discussing the kings that we're going to be looking at uh, in these coming sessions, the big question is, do they know how to humble themselves? Do they know how to seek the face of God? And will they experience God's healing? Those are all words that he's going to use repeatedly. Unfortunately, in the very end, what characterizes them is the same thing that characterized Saul. They were unfaithful. Ma'al. But the chronicler has some powerful examples of what can happen if you become humble, and if you seek God's face, and if you experience his healing. This is Dr. August Kunkel in his teaching on the books of Chronicles. This is session number 14, The Divine Presence. Mm -hmm.